0: Amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to begin this morning by uh, begging your indulgence a little bit. Uh, This is a very unique kind of message this morning. It's not something uh, that I normally do. Uh, but it's something I'm convinced. I wrestled with it a little bit, but uh, maybe think of this morning's message. If we think of this series on apostasy as one long message, of course, we're going through a lot of different passages of Scripture. Uh, If you think of this message as part of one larger, greater message, I trust you'll see the point. This morning is going to be far more of a history class uh, than it's going to be a Bible exposition. And I feel that's one of the best ways Uh, just to shine the spotlight on the things we're discussing and uh, really give some context with what's going on around us. Of course, uh, let me say this too. Some of you are prolific note takers, which is a wonderful thing. A lot of what we cover today, especially when we get to the 20th century, don't feel like you have to jot it all down. I have far more extensive notes Uh, than what I'm going to even talk about this morning. If you would like them, I can get those to you. So especially when we get to that section, we're going to mention a lot of names, dates, places, and things like that. Don't feel like you have to write it all down. Uh, Just let me know and I will get a copy of it into your hands. Of course, we're spending several weeks delving into the critical topic of apostasy. And uh, so far, just some of the major things we've covered. Uh, Apostasy is a sign that is... Uh to the mostly Gentile churches. Again, many of the signs that we associate with the coming of the Lord drawing near, of course, we don't know the day or the hour. Anybody who ever says they know when Jesus is coming back is automatically a kook. And I am amazed at the number of people that have done that uh, in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, many of them have done it multiple times. Once should be enough. No man knows the day or the hour, period. No man. Nobody. Somebody thinks they do, they don't. Um, But that being said, there are many signs that we see appearing or uh, maybe certain uh, things being said in preparation, the Jewish temple, the training of the Jewish priesthood, the uh, things that are happening in Israel with them returning to their land uh, now roughly 70 years ago, etc. But those have to do with Israel. Israel. And apostasy is one of the major signs given specifically to the churches. And again, it's a massive, massive topic. Uh, We've mentioned multiple times it's the second most prolific topic in the entire New Testament. It's something the Lord wants us to know about. It's something that entire New Testament books cover. And uh, we are going to spend more time later on expositing specific passages. So like I said, this morning is a little bit unique. Uh, In that respect, but I trust that it will be a blessing to you. I really hope that this panoramic view, okay, will help again uh, shine the light on what it is we're talking about. Apostasy is speaking of a widespread departure from the faith. Okay, you can't be an apostate if you never profess to be a Christian to begin with. It's talking about people who leave at least a profession of an allegiance to Christ. And they, they either drift away or they walk away or they flat out run away and turn their back on it. But the Bible tells us repeatedly this will be an increasing phenomenon as the church age draws to a close. And it is a, it is a progressive sign. It's not one that you will say, OK, it's fully arrived. OK, the completion of apostasy will happen after the rapture when every Christian is removed from the earth. And then there will be 100 percent apostasy. It will only be the fake churches left behind, and there will be many of them. Many of them. It's a sobering thing. But apostasy will progress until uh, the time of the rapture. And it has always been around since the days of the New Testament, even in the Old Testament. But it has definitely exploded exponentially in the past century and a half. And we did talk about this passage. I find it fascinating That the Apostle Paul, a man on death row in a Roman dungeon, about to face beheadings at the hand of a murdering sodomite lunatic. Nero was a monster of a man. He really was. And Paul is imprisoned by that man. And he knows he's about to lose his head. He knows Nero Uh, would dunk Christians in hot wax and light them on fire and use them as torches while he rode through his garden. Uh, He did this sort of thing for fun. And Paul, writing in that backdrop, says, Timothy, in the end times, the last days, perilous times are coming. He was saying times that are hard to bear are coming. He's saying "This, this is not the same. There's going to come this level of religious confusion. Um, There's going to come this sheer amount of professing believers that become totally resistant to sound Bible teaching, and it's going to make those days hard to bear. So one of the things we're going to focus on this morning is notable happenings of the 20th century. And really the amount of things with relation to apostasy that exploded on the scene in that 100-year period is staggering. And I think that just, and we're not going to cover all of them, But we're going to hit at least some of the highlights, and I trust you'll see what I mean. And I hope it'll help us to have our guard up and see that these movements that are around today, what they're rooted in, where they came from. I mean, any movement you're wrapped up in, you ought to wonder, how did this come about? Who were the founders? What were their beliefs? Why did they head this direction? Those things are of paramount importance. And I thank God that we have the evidence or the uh, information to be able to look back at that. Uh, in the 20th century, just the plethora of religious movements, the influential publications, the charismatic personalities, the complex errors, the death of the mainline denominations, uh, coupled with massive societal changes and skyrocketing technology, and those things that appeared in that century is astounding, And so we're going to spend our entire time this morning just looking at an overview of church history and then focusing in uh, mostly on the 20th century. And I want to be careful not to overly simplify this. If you've studied church history at all, you know it's a complex, voluminous topic. But I want to hit some of the major stuff that happened since the days of the apostles uh, heading up to where we are now. And I certainly can't cover everything I would like to cover, uh, but we'll try to hit the main things. And of course, one of the best ways to understand our particular era is to put it in a broad historical context and compare that with the scriptures. In other words, if we can back out of our day and try to look at it from a broader perspective, we can get a better idea of what's going on and where this is heading and uh, compare that with the word of God and you get a pretty good idea what's happening. But uh, most of you know, the tendency today is just the opposite. Throw out the scriptures and contextualize everything within our little bubble. That's why you see the American founding fathers being totally trashed because broader historical context is missing. They judge them according to the last 10 years, which is certainly not a very fair judgment. All right, so let's just start with a very fast and basic review leading up to the 20th century. Again, uh, 95 A.D., roughly, the book of Revelation is penned, the final book of the Scriptures by the Apostle John. And uh, shortly after that, at some point, he is promoted to glory. And already by that time, we've illustrated this, I'm not going to do it again, but you see it in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that existed in Asia Minor. Already by 95 A.D., in the departure of John, the leaven was spreading very quickly. There are many errors that are dealt with uh, with those seven churches, as well as Paul's epistles. And again, we took time walking through those, at least in a, a quick way, showing how many different errors concerning the resurrection and the person of Christ were already existing in seed form. Okay, But even though the leaven was spreading for the first 280 years of Christianity, it was outlawed by the Roman Empire. Think about that. Uh, longer than America's been around, Christianity was labeled a threat to the state. Now, there were various periods of imperial persecution in Rome. Some were worse than others. But for that entire 280-year period, a Christian person technically was an enemy of the state. Their beliefs were illegal in Rome. Now, that changed at the Edict of Milan, which was signed by Constantine in the year 313 AD, which effectively, effectively lifted the ban on Christianity. And the question inevitably comes up was Constantine a true Christian? Now, that is very doubtful, examining historical evidence. Uh, Constantine was more of a polytheistic pragmatist. Uh, Constantine believed in multiple deities. But he believed that the God of the Christians was the most powerful, and so he wanted to harness that power to create some sort of unity to help uh, his political situation as the emperor. So uh, he made Christianity legal and eventually turned it into the state religion. But he was using Christianity to accomplish his own ends as a ruler, And what that did was basically open the door of a sacral society, uh, and many of those would come up for the next many, many centuries. What's a sacral society? A sacral society is when religion is blended with government into one entity. Now, there's only been one of those in history that was good and sanctioned of God, and that was the nation Israel. Every other sacral society in history has proved to be a total curse. By the way, that's true of those on American soil. Many are maybe unaware that those that fled here, most of the religious groups that came to America, they fled sacral societies over in Europe... And they tried to found sacral societies here. They tried to build state churches in their individual colonies. It was actually the influence of Baptist ministers that got the principle of separation of church and state included in our Bill of Rights. And separation of church and state was never about keeping Christians out of government. Separation of church and state was to keep a state church from happening. It was to keep civil laws from punishing people for breaking religious rules, so to speak, because mankind's always been unable to resist that kind of tyrannical power. Well, anyway, surrounding Constantine uh, were the so called church fathers. And really, that name is a total misnomer. Uh, If there are any church fathers to the real churches, it was the apostles, and that was it the real apostles. It's doubtful what church they're talking about when they say that. But who were the church fathers? They were a group of influential theologian writers from the 2nd to the 5th century AD, spanning roughly 400 years. And uh, they were voluminous writers, very influential men. But the reason they're so vaunted and lifted up today is not because they're compared with the Scriptures, but because they were ancient and they were convincing. They're typically uh, grouped into four different groups, uh, historical groups. And let me remind you of something. Just because something's ancient, it doesn't mean it's right. Heresy is as old as the Garden of Eden. The word of God is the authority, not some supposed fathers. And uh, many, I say this as a pastor with a broken heart, many, many, many people have been led into tremendous error by reading these guys. We illustrated that a couple of weeks ago. Somebody says that they're leaving evangelicalism and they're going back to the Roman Catholic Church. Inevitably, the next words out of their mouth are, I've been reading the church fathers. Not the Bible. The church fathers. (laughs) Now... Uh, all of them were leavened with some kind of error, some worse than others, but even the so-called apostolic fathers of the second century were already teaching the false gospel that baptism and celibacy and martyrdom provided forgiveness of sins. So they were already embracing false gospels at the very beginning of these so-called fathers in their writings. And uh, later on, these so-called church fathers, you find the seed of every other heresy that the Roman Catholic Church ended up teaching. In fact, one of the 5th century fathers, church fathers, uh, was Leo, the first Roman Catholic Pope. Now, that emphasis of lifting these men up above the scriptures eventually morphed into the long-standing practice of Roman Catholicism, where tradition trumped the written word of God. So basically, these church fathers, what they did is paved the way into the foundation of Roman Catholicism and a sacral society that dominated the earth. What did that bring in? Well, that brought in a period we know as the Dark Ages, roughly 500 to 1500 A.D., a thousand years. And why was it dark? Well, because individual copies of the Word of God were exceedingly rare, and uh, handwritten copies of those I've actually seen some of them. it's fascinating. If you ever get a chance to see handwritten Bibles from 1,200 and 1300, it's amazing the detail. But they cost over a year's worth of wages to buy your own copy. Think about that. And put that a hell on average. you're talking 55,000 dollars to own a Bible. It's incredible. It was the Dark Ages because Catholicism became the dominant world religion and claimed to be Christian while slaughtering millions of true believers and ruling with an iron fist, generally joined together with the state, which led to the Inquisitions. Horrible time in history. And they deliberately kept the word of God away from the common man because he was too ignorant to understand it for himself. This went on for 10 centuries. But this has to be maintained. For that entire thousand year period, there were many true churches that were forced into hiding. Some of them we know about, many of them we don't. Uh, But Rome largely controlled the historical documentation. They ran the history books. Uh, Books like Martyr's Mirror, fantastic books, if you can get your hands on that. Um, Documents a lot of the martyrdom during the Dark Ages. And what you find is the believers of that time frame, now they had doctrinal errors too at times, but those that were true Christians maintained with almost without exception that the Pope was the Antichrist. Now, I don't think the Pope is the Antichrist mentioned in Revelation and Daniel, but my point is they understood we're not going the same direction as that. We preach a different Jesus. We preach a different gospel. We preach a different baptism. We teach a different way of life and structure of the church and church leadership and purpose for existence. We are not going the same direction. So the Dark Ages comes to a close uh, with the Protestant Reformation, which technically they would say it officially started in 1517 with Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Chapel door. But many other factors played into that. Uh, Men like John Wycliffe, he's been called the morning star of the Reformation. Uh, He came before Luther's time. uh, Fearlessly denounced the heresy of his day, preached a biblical gospel that men should repent and be new creatures and uh tirelessly translated the scriptures into the common language then you have the invention of the printing press in 1440 and uh, even secular historians many of them if you ask them what is the most earth-shaking invention in the history of the world they will say it was the printing press because of how that changed the world and what was the first thing they started printing the bible Uh, Now, all of a sudden, the printing of the scriptures was affordable for the common man. And then you have men like William Tyndale, uh, who was begging God to keep him alive long enough to get the scriptures into the hands of every plowboy, And then he was ready to leave this earth. And God granted him that request. I mean, what was the light that ended the Dark Ages? It was the scriptures in the hands of the people. That's what ended the Dark Ages. So... Really, it's an errant question. Somebody says, are you Protestant or Catholic? I know what they mean, but I will tell them neither. And I don't have to pick one of them. You see, what that does is assume that Roman Catholicism used to be the true church, which it never was. It also assumes that everybody else came out of it and must be Protestant, which is not true. The idea of Protestant Reformation, it's protesting Rome's errors and trying to reform the Catholic system, which can't be fixed. Now, there were many good things about Luther. okay, But many of the heresies that some of the reformers had left in Rome, they carried with them. Things like infant baptism and the like. They never renounced those. But there's no question that the true gospel took root in men's souls and produced massive and far-reaching changes. Now, out of that came the rise of the mainline Protestant denominations. And the worldwide chokehold of Catholicism was broken. The Anglican system started because King Henry VIII wanted an annulment and the Pope wouldn't give him one, so he starts his own religion. There's a good reason. But Presbyterian and Lutheranism and uh, many of them for a time preached a solid gospel. There's been some good men that have come out of those. Of course, 1611, right after that, came the printing of the King James Version, the most accurate one ever produced in the English language, and really became the standard of the English-speaking world for 270 years until 1881 with the revised version coming out. Now, fast forward until the 1700s, the early 1700s. America's heavily colonized. Churches there and in Great Britain are are really pretty filled up. The ministers were considered the most respected and important citizens in any given city or town. But many of them attended church simply as a habit or to maintain their society status. Policies like pew rent. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, you would pay to rent your pew, and the, the, the richer you were, the further up front it was, and everybody knew you paid more for that pew. And so it was a, it was a society status. If you, were, if you wanted to be the who's who in society, you better be in church on Sunday. Forget about actually doing what the preacher says, but at least show up. Uh, policies like the halfway covenant. Uh, were basically an admission that large numbers of church members were lost and dead in their sins, and many of the ministers knew that. In fact, Jonathan Edwards was later fired from his pastorate. In fact, this was after the Great Awakening. You know why, why Edwards was fired? Because he taught you had to be born again to take communion. And the lost people of his church couldn't stand that. And so they threw him out. Anyway, into that deadness, though, uh, enter men like George Whitfield, and John Wesley and the aforementioned Jonathan Edwards and a whole lot of lesser known men and opens up this period known as the Great Awakening, one of my favorite periods in church history. On both sides of the Atlantic, there's this preaching that probed consciences and showed mankind his guilt and the holiness and wrath of God on doomed sinners and the glory of Christ and the need for a miraculous new birth. And the effects of that were very, very polarizing. Many rejected these men and what they stood for and continued in deadness. But thousands upon thousands were converted. Churches were formed. Towns were changed. Taverns and gambling halls were shut down and preachers were raised up. And that great awakening time frame in the early 1700s and mid-1700s had a lot to do with the biblical influence in the early days of our nation's founding. Even among the lost, the Bible was generally revered and God was generally feared, at least in a general sense. That also led to the modern missionary movement, as we call it. It stemmed from prayer meetings in the late 1700s, which led men like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and later on Hudson Taylor to travel completely to pagan places to preach the gospel. It's it's really it's hard for us to understand that that was unheard of in the English speaking churches in that time. Uh, We've gotten so used to missionaries coming through and on deputation or whatever, and they're heading all over the world, and we, we take that as a normal thing. You have to remember, in the 1700s, that was not a normal thing. People didn't do that. They knew the Great Commission, but nobody was going to foreign places until men like William Carey and others, and a whole slew of them followed after and planted churches in Burma and India and China and Africa. Okay, then you get to the early 1800s, And the time of the Second Great Awakening. And uh, my opinion, I think I can prove that, is the Second Great Awakening was much shallower in character than the First Great Awakening. Leading men were guys like Charles Finney, who I don't mean to be unkind, but I don't have a huge amount of respect for him. Uh, He was one of the men that introduced revivalism. Basically that revival is simply the product of applying certain things and then it necessarily follows. Uh, What the first great awakening, now there were people converted, yes. There were some tremendous men like Asahel Nettleton, solid, careful evangelists. But really out of that second great awakening came this emphasis on revivalism and instant results and showmanship. That's where things like the mourner's bench and long, drawn-out invitations that were very, very emotional, the instant counting of converts, all these were new practices in the mid-1800s. Finney claimed over 500,000 converts in his official tallies. As Some ministers were so aggravated after he left. There was one section in New York they called the Burned Over District. Because it was filled with Fenny's supposed converts that were twice the monsters they were before after he left. And that led to men like Billy Sunday. And I don't mean to be unkind, Billy Sunday did some good, but he was a lot heavier on the theatrics than he was on substance. If you compare a Billy Sunday sermon to a George Whitefield sermon, you might be shocked at the difference. It's astounding. So by the latter half of the 1800s, many of these thousands of converts had gone right back to the world and a lot of the excitement had long since faded away. Now D.L. Moody was still holding large meetings all over the country. He died in 1899 after preaching his last. And God bless that brother. There's a lot of good things about him. But in the interest of reaching more for Christ, he was one of the forerunners of forming associations and alliances for the sake of reaching a broader audience that the word of God forbids. He was a dear brother, but he was a groundbreaking compromiser. And all around him, the stage is being set for the 20th century. A few more things and we'll be there. In 1859, Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species, And almost immediately, it's treated like unassailable fact. We've proven it at last. God can finally be dismissed from society. Unfortunately, many leading theologians of the day, uh, they looked at that and they thought, I can't refute that. I must bend the scriptures to fit this modern scientific model. In fact, I highly, highly recommend the old Schofield Reference Bible. It's fantastic. But he misses the boat terribly in Genesis 1 when he gives credence to theistic evolution and tries to blend modern secular Darwinian science with the creation account, which are diametrically opposed. And many men did that in the end of the 1800s. And then you have guys like Robert Ingersoll, the rabid atheist, who's traveling around shocking audiences all over the country with his brash defiance of God's existence. And the American people actually listened to a guy like that. Secondly, what else happened at the end of the 1800s? You have the explosion of most of the major cults and false churches that claim to be Christian and are not. Mary Baker Eddy, or Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. I might be missing one of her names. She had a lot of husbands. She founds Christian Science, 1875. You have Joseph Smith and then Brigham Young of Mormon fame. Brigham Young gets to Salt Lake City, 1847. Mormonism explodes. Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses and Watchtower Society, Society, late 1800s. Ellen G. White with their over 2,000 dreams and visions, found Seventh-day Adventism, late 1800s. The so-called Churches of Christ, of the so-called Restoration Movement, those that teach baptismal regeneration, that you're saved through being dunked. Uh, that was formed in the late 1800s. By the way, many, many of these errant groups, they'll use the word restoration. That, that should trigger something. What they're saying is we are restoring something that has been lost. Wait a minute. I thought Matthew 16, 18 said that the gates of hell will not prevail. Now you're telling me that there's been no true church for the last 1800 years. Forget you. But many of them do that. And I could go on and on with that list, but we won't. And maybe more damaging than any of that is the rise of so-called modern textual criticism. Now, textual criticism as itself isn't, by itself isn't a bad thing. It's just judging which texts are authentic and what they mean and how you're going to go about translating them. But modern textual criticism arose in the end of the 1800s, which was based largely on heresy and unbelief. We're going to treat the Bible like any other book. Men like Tischendorf, the German, looking for supposedly more ancient Bible texts. And uh, what does he find? He finds uh, one in a waste bin on a monastery in Mount Sinai, which became known as Codex Sinaiticus. with along with Vaticanus became the foundation of the entire modern Bible translation movement. Men like Westcott and Hort, uh, just heretical men, I don't have time to get into it, but all of this sets the stage for what we see in the 20th century. You have this widespread rejection even by leading theologians in the Genesis account that it was created ex nihilo and six literal days and God rested the seventh. You have this explosion of errant groups claiming to be Christian which are going to blow across America and the rest of the world. Uh, Many of them fueled no doubt by the fake converts that came from the shallow evangelism of decades prior. And then you have the explosion of a widespread doubt of the doctrines of preservation and inspiration of the scriptures, which undermine the reliability of the word of God at all. And that's how the 20th century begins. Now, quickly, I mentioned societal changes like what? And then we'll get into the theological ones. I mean, there was a standard of living that arose during the 1900s that was never before thought possible here. By over 1920, a huge shift in demographics to where over half of Americans, for the first time in history, lived in cities. Not that cities are bad in and of themselves, but there can be a different mentality that goes with that. Uh, The advent of rock music and uh, absolutely changed the face of Western society. You know, Elvis Presley gyrating his cute little hips in a suit, was deemed unfit for family entertainment in the 1950s. My, how times have changed. I wonder what Ed Sullivan would think of these eye-painted demon men with hair down to their waist in spandex, screaming words you can't even understand. I wonder if he'd think that was fit for family entertainment. Now, along with television and affordable automobiles, which again, those are not wrong by themselves, but it helped create a separate subculture known as the teenager. You realize the whole idea of teenagers as a separate subculture did not exist before the 1950s? It didn't exist. For the first time in history, as far as I know of, there was a widespread generation gap that appeared as a result of that. And the most admired people in the eyes of young people, you know who they used to be? Fireman, police chief, a preacher maybe, the president. Who do the most admired people become? Sports star, movie star, music star, fashion designer. In other words, young people went from admiring character and contribution to society to admiring total vanity. Vanity. And the age of the celebrity was born. you ever look at some of these celebrities and think, what did they do to get famous? Well, they're pretty. So what? They won't be in 50 years? The American family went through a huge makeover. Now it was gathered around the TV instead of the dinner table or out at the cornfield... And all of a sudden, that became the major influencer in what you bought, how you thought, who you admired, where you went, how you spent your time, who was pretty, who was ugly, what church was supposed to look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then there came an addiction to electronics with the skyrocketing and the idea that entertainment is a daily need. Now, I'm not saying entertainment's always bad, but I'm saying our generation thinking it's a constant need was foreign to previous generations. And of course, the Internet has compounded things and brought narcissism to new heights. And many more things could be added, but you get the picture. Okay, now all those societal changes coupled with all the things said at the end of the 1800s. okay, what happened in the theological front in the 20th century? And again, I'm just going to hit some of these. I can't hit them all. And I want to plead with you. I'm going to name some names that you know well, some of them. But the reason I mention these names is because you can't really talk about apostasy without talking about them. I I find it amazing going through this list just in the first 25 years of 19, the 1900s, what happened? 1900, the year 1900. uh, John Alexander Dowie basically sets the stage for what would become the Pentecostal movement. And he all of a sudden shows up and proclaims that he is Elijah, the restorer, who is to precede the Lord's coming, that he is the first apostle of the, here's the key word, renewed end times church. So he says, I'm Elijah. I'm preceding the Lord's coming. I'm an apostle and I'm starting a renewed or a, uh, you know, a church that's been restored. And of course, instead of being thrown out of town, This guy attracts a massive following. Sadly, his own daughter dies because he refuses medical treatment because he's going to heal her, and she dies of burns when she could have been treated. 1901, the modern tongues movement was launched. Why do I say modern tongues movement? You have to understand, historically, the idea of speaking in tongues, whether the real or the phony, had been gone for a long time. And then all of a sudden, in this century, with everything going on, on New Year's Day, Agnes Osman, a student at Charles Parham's Bethel Bible School in Kansas, all of a sudden begins to speak in a language she would supposedly never learned. So all of a sudden, the tongues phenomena just shows up in the early 20th century. Uh, 1904, Sigmund Freud publishes his Psych- Psychopathology of Everyday Life. Now, he wasn't a Christian, nor did he claim to be one. But this started the whole movement of psychoanalysis that has actually destroyed the moral fabric of civilized society. I mean, what was Freud basing his theories on? It's not that your sin is your willing rebellion against a holy God. It's your sins, not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. And if it's not somebody else's fault, it should be somebody else's fault. But the point is, it's not your fault. You're not guilty. Now, not only did that destroy regular secular so-called psychology, but in the latter half of the century, it has totally permeated the field of so-called Christian counseling, filled with Sigmund Freud. It's no Christian counseling at all when it's that kind. There is good biblical counseling still, by the way, but it's getting harder to find. 1906, uh, this strange movement called the Azusa Street Revival begins, and it was also a tongues movement and very, very strange. It's a long history, but they gave this false promise of healing, uh, ordained women preachers, Uh, began in Los Angeles and inaugurated the official Pentecostal movement, which followed it after that. By the way, the whole thing went belly up and bankrupt and was a huge scandal and blot in the name of Christ. But that's another story. 1906, Albert Schweitzer publishes the book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And he claims that Jesus was not the supernatural Messiah, the eternal Son of God, but he was a mere man who, thinking that the destruction of the world was imminent, attempted to usher it in by his death. And so Jesus just died to bring in the end of the world. He was not God. Here's a big name. I'll explain why. 1907. Walter Rauschenbusch. Baptist preacher. He publishes Christianity and the Social Crisis. And he begins to popularize what's called the social Gospel. Now, what's the social gospel? The social gospel is the idea that the main purpose of religion is to change society on the social level. So uh, Rauschenbusch read heavily on the ideas of uh, democratic socialism. Does that sound familiar? This Baptist minister was promoting democratic socialism and using Christianity as the best means to bring that about. So the gospel is subjugated underneath that, and our whole purpose as Christians is to fix the little ills of society, not change men from the inside out. By the way, uh, side note, books like In His Steps by Charles Sheldon, you may have heard of it, the whole what would Jesus do thing. That is a social gospel mantra. That's where that came from. 1908, the Federal Council of Churches in America is founded. Now, this is the first of many of these big ecumenical join-everybody-together organizations. In 1908, it's founded in America, and their express purpose was to promote ecumenical unity and liberal social and political causes. And so they're beginning to build the one-world church. Uh, 1913... Ferdinand de Sasser publishes the course in general linguistics. It was actually published posthumously after he was gone. But what did that do? That started modern linguistic theory, which denies God and denies the absolute nature of language. Why is that important? Well, according to this guy, the meaning of language isn't something to be recovered in an absolute sense, but it's something each person creates for himself. You ever wonder how some people can look at the Constitution and say it's a it's a fluid document. It doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means to me. That's where it came from. Uh, People do the same thing to the scriptures. I don't need language in the absolute sense. I'm going to get what's in it for me. What what matters is what this means to me. No, what matters is what this means. And then once you understand what it means, now you can apply it properly. So modern linguistic theory started in the early 1900s. 1915, the newly formed Assemblies of God, the largest Pentecostal denomination, is torn right in half in its first two years of existence by a Unitarian controversy. Uh, Roughly half of the contingents were oneness Pentecostals, which basically means they totally reject the Trinity, And they believe that the Trinity is simply three manifestations of one person, Jesus. So they call themselves Jesus only or Unitarian, uh, which is total heresy. There is a Trinity in the scriptures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 1918, here's a huge name in this topic. uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, He's one of the most influential pastors in America, part of the Northern Baptist Convention. Um, in New York, Riverside Church. He publishes a book. This most influential Baptist minister in America publishes The Manhood of the Master. That sounds like a good title. But he brazenly denies in his book that Jesus is God. Jesus is just, he, he's, he's not divine. Uh, 1919, Karl Barth publishes the first of his commentaries. And he was one of the fathers of what's called Neo-Orthodoxy. Now, Neo-Orthodoxy is a crafty thing because what it does is hide unbelief in Orthodox language. For instance, a Neo-Orthodox person will say, Second coming, bodily resurrection, inspiration of Scripture, but they completely deny what those terms mean. In fact, according to Neo-Orthodoxy, The Bible is not in itself the objective and infallible word of God. But listen to this. The Bible becomes the word of God as you experience it. We're not even 20 years in yet. 1921. Here comes Carl Jung publishes Psychological Types or the Psychology of Individualism. Now, this guy delved deeply into Eastern religions, Gnosticism, mythology, astrology, and occultism. He prepared the way for the New Age movement. He attended seances and acquired a spirit guide who he said his name was Philemon. But he had a huge influence on so-called Christianity with moral relativism. In other words, things are not absolutely wrong. They depend on your particular situation. One writer said later on, it's no exaggeration to say that the theological positions of most mainstream denominations in their approach to pastoral care as well as their doctrines and liturgy have become more or less identical with Carl Jung's psychological symbolic theology. Astounding. 1924, the Methodist Episcopal Church approves the ordination of female pastors. 1925 is the Scopes Trial which was one big horrendous joke, which basically led the mainstream media to make a total mockery at a Bible believing Christians. 1925, here comes Albert Whitehead. He publishes Science in the Modern World. He was the prominent voice of what was called process theology. Which basically taught that God is not the omnipotent, unchangeable God of the Bible, but God is in process. God is growing along with the world. God is developing along with you and I. The things we do affect who God is and what God becomes. You hear that? the hiss of the serpent in any of this stuff? It's amazing. How about this one? 1926. Remember Harry Emerson Vosdick? Publishes a book, Denying Jesus is God? Well... Eight years later, his denomination, the Northern Baptist Convention, they have a debate lasting five hours. Debate should have never been that long. They have a debate lasting five hours about whether or not they should throw Emerson Fosdick and his church out of the denomination. And they vote, no, he is not a heretic. Now, watch what happens to this guy. You see, listen, you you don't deal with leaven. It spreads like crazy, and it did with him. His denomination had a chance to buck up, act like men, and get rid of this guy and publicly call him what he was. But oh, no, no, they needed his influence, you see. They needed his eloquence. They needed his brains. So they left him in the association. 1927, in The Christ-Like God, uh, Methodist Bishop Francis McConnell denies the deity of Christ, And he says, is not this tendency to make Jesus God more heathen than Christian? 1929, Princeton Theological Seminary. By the way, all of the Ivy League colleges in America were theological schools when they started. And one by one, they fell to apostasy like Domino's, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Down they went. Uh, 1929. Princeton finally witnessed an exodus of conservative Presbyterians who formed the Westminster Theological Seminary. They came out of Princeton. Uh, 1931, Henry Sloan Coffin, the president emeritus of Union Seminary, the former moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America. Here's what he says about hymns. Certain hymns still perpetuate the theory that God pardons sinners because Christ purchased that pardon by his obedience and suffering. The cross of Christ is not a means of procuring forgiveness. How about that? 1923, finally people left the Northern Baptist Convention for their obvious apostasy and formed the GARBC, the General Association of Regular Baptists. 1935. Now now, pay attention to this. George Buttrick is a Presbyterian pastor and he would eventually become president of the Federal Council of Churches, this national organization trying to promote unity and spread the gospel through all of us just loving each other. Here's what this guy wrote. He said, literal infallibility of scripture is a fortress impossible to defend. He says, anybody that holds to... Literal infallibility of scriptures is risking a trip to the insane asylum. If you believe your Bible is the word of God, you deserve to go to the insane asylum, says this president of the National Council of Churches. In 1944. I'm going to mention another huge name in this because you can't talk about apostasy without talking about Billy Graham. Billy Graham, look, I I know the guy's nice, charismatic. I believe some people have come to Christ through his ministry, but he has done more than almost any man in that century to create apostasy in America. And trust me, I mean that. Let me document why I'm saying that. Youth for Christ Evangelist Billy Graham, beginning in 1944. He meets together with a famous Roman Catholic leader Fulton Sheen on a train. This is 1944, and Graham says later about this meeting with this prominent Catholic theologian, we talked about our ministries and our common commitment to evangelism. What evangelism? And I told him how grateful I was for his ministry and his focus on Christ. We talked further and we prayed, and by the time he left, I felt as if I'd known him all my life, where Sheen's hope for heaven was in Mary by his own testimony while well, I get to later. 1944, Pentecostal evangelist Smith Wigglesworth starts the Word Faith Movement saying, What you say will come to pass. Speak the word, and the bound shall be free, and the sick shall be healed. Uh, 1944, the the guy who'd become the president of the World Council of Churches later on, now the worldwide organization trying to make a one-world church, G. Bromley-Oxton, Methodist bishop, he endorses calling the God of the Old Testament a dirty bully, And says we should hate Jehovah because he's a dirty bully. 1945, back to Harry Emerson Fosdick, who wasn't dealt with when he should have been. He writes a letter to an inquiring individual from Peru, Indiana, and he says, Of course, I do not believe in the virgin birth or that old fashioned substitutionary doctrine of atonement. In other words, I don't believe the gospel. I know of no intelligent person who does. now Fosdick would go on to become the featured radio personality for the Federal Council of Churches after it was formed in 1950. This is one of the preeminent voices of so-called Christian ecumenical movement. And he says, I reject the gospel and I know of no intelligent person who believes it. 1946, how's the Northern Baptist Convention doing? Uh, they hold their annual meeting, and the host pastor says this. God may be identified as a piece of this world's stuff. God is a part of the great whole, and as such, constantly being broken and destroyed and frustrated. I must say that God is not eternal and that he can exercise his will at will. I, I just I feel like I have to wash my mouth out with soap reading some of these statements. It blows me away. All right, 1948. A huge year and another big name is Harold Gay. Why do I say he's a big name? This is where the new evangelical movement starts. Uh, Evangelicalism is simply preaching the gospel, Bible faith. That's what it historically meant. But he coins the term in 1948, neo-evangelicalism or new evangelicalism. And he announces, my generation has repudiated separatism. And we're going to put a more positive intellectual face on Christianity. So his goal was, we're going to play nice. And we want the world to respect us. We want them to see how intellectual we are. And in order to do that, we're going to go positive only But nothing's changed, right? Nothing's changed. Uh, By the way, the emerging church of today is simply the logical offshoot of what happened in 1948. That's where the seeds were sown. Uh, 1949, Oral Roberts' ministry begins with a strangeness. Uh, 1949 also was the Curcio movement. That was huge because it became instrumental at bringing Roman Catholics into the Pentecostal movement to deepen their faith. In 1950, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is formed. Harold Ockengay becomes one of the directors. The same year, Roman Catholic Cardinal Cushing promotes Graham with the words, Bravo, Billy! And Billy Graham says, that was my first real coming to grips with the whole Protestant-Catholic situation. I began to realize there were Christians everywhere. They might be called modernists, Catholics, or whatever, but they were Christians, he says. I'm going to have selectively pick some of these. Again, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to bash Billy Graham, but I'm trying to illustrate The creation of a one-world church and the tearing down of the precision of the gospel was largely facilitated by him. The fruit has been horrendous. The full gospel businessmen's fellowship is started in 1954. It's founded by Dimas Shikarian, and it would become a major catalyst to the charismatic ecumenical movement. Ecumenical means everybody joining together, no matter what they believe. So it's gonna de-emphasize doctrine and stress a shared religious experience, and of course, a high percentage later become Roman Catholic. Uh, Billy Graham says in 1952, many of the people who've reached the decision for Christ at our meetings have joined the Catholic church, and we've received commendations from Catholic publications for the revived interest in their church following one of our campaigns. After all, one of our prime purposes is to help the churches in a community with no discrimination on that. I mean, no separation of true gospel from false. We just want to help every church out there. And if people end up from our meeting in any church, no matter what that church believes, we're good with that. Huh? In 1953, Graham locks himself in a room in New York City for an entire day with theological modernists, Jesse Bader and John Sutherland Bonnell, to ask them questions and receive their counsel. Bonnell, one of the men that counseled him, later testified that he and almost every other Presbyterian minister do not believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ or the inspiration of scriptures or a literal heaven and hell. That was who was influencing him. 1954, the rock and roll era is born when Sun Records in Memphis records Elvis Presley's single, That's All Right, Mama, which, of course, changed the face of Western culture since that time. 1956, Christianity Today magazine is formed by Billy Graham with Carl Henry as its editor-in-chief. And it's going to become the premier voice of a positive emphasis, non-judgmental, non-separatist, intellectually respectable, new evangelical Christianity. 1958, listen to this one. This is shocking. An official follow-up of Billy Graham's San Francisco crusade reported that of the roughly 1,300 Catholics who came forward at the invitation, practically all remained Catholic, continued to pray to Mary, go to Mass, and confess sins to a priest, which was something that continued throughout his whole ministry. In 1961, Michael Ramsey, Archbishop of Canterbury, publicly says, Heaven is not a place for Christians only. I expect to see some atheists there. 1962 uh, begins the Second Vatican Council, opened by Pope John the, the, the 23rd, And it begins this three-year restructuring process, which brings huge changes, surface changes, to the Roman Catholic Church. But here's what it does. It launches the Roman Catholic Church to the very forefront of the ecumenical movement. Remember, historically, there was no union between a Presbyterian and a Catholic. Different gospel, different Christ, different leadership. Now, what happens? Now, things shift in the middle 1900s, and now the Roman Catholic Church puts on a smiley face, and now they're going to help everybody join together for evangelistic unity and love, whatever that means. 1962 comes Kenneth Taylor's The Living Bible translation. I'm not even going to get into that, but it's awful. Um, 1964, a religious survey extrapolates in 1964 that 60,000 church members in three mainline denominations in America Church members are atheist and agnostic In 1967, I don't miss this one for the first time in history, Roman Catholics begin speaking in tongues in the United States and join the charismatic movement. Some Catholics associated with Notre Dame University approach Ray Bullard, the president of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, and they invite these men from an Assemblies of God congregation, and they ask them and their Pentecostal friends to come lay their hands on these Catholics, and lo and behold, off they go speaking in tongues. Now keep in mind. These men did not renounce their false doctrine, false gospel and practice, but yet they still have these Pentecostal-type experiences. That should be a loud warning flag about this movement. And uh, that, of course, has continued up to the present day. 1968, a religious survey published by Jeffrey Haddon shows among the Methodist pastors... 60% do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. And 50% don't believe in the resurrection. 1968, the World Council of Churches sanctions violence as a necessary uh, part of the pursuing of social justice. So they say, well, if you have to stir up violence, that's okay as long as it produces social change. Uh, Do you know the mantra of groups like BLM? Started with the World Council of Churches. It's nothing new. In 1972, William Johnson of the Northern California Golden Gate Association of the United States, United Church of Christ, becomes the first openly homosexual person to be ordained by a mainline denomination. When asked if he could be a good minister without a wife, Johnson replies, I don't really feel I need a wife. I hope someday to share a deep love relationship with another man. 1972. Some of the higher ups in Roman Catholic authority, they are asked, Why is it that Catholics and total modernists accept Billy Graham? Here's what he said. Because he's preaching basic Christianity, he doesn't enter into matters which divide Christians. He does not touch on sacraments or church in any detail. No word against the mass or sacraments or Catholic practices. Graham has no time for that. In other words, Graham does not have time to preach the gospel clearly enough that somebody who's dead in their sins has any clue what he's talking about. It is criminal for any preacher of the gospel to stand up before a group that he knows is totally entrenched in a false gospel and not speak clearly enough to where they know what he's talking about or at least have a chance. He didn't have time for that. Again, Billy Graham, 1973. 1973. He says on October 21st, this past week, I preached in a great Catholic cathedral, a funeral sermon for a close friend of mine who was a Catholic. They had several bishops and archbishops to participate. And as I sat there going through the funeral mass, that was a very beautiful thing and certainly straight and clear in the gospel. Did you catch that? the man who supposedly the world's foremost evangelist sits through a Catholic funeral mass and says it was completely clear in the gospel. Huh? It's it's, it's astounding. 1973, J. Kincaid Smith graduates from the Hama School of Theology, a Lutheran church in America seminary. And really, this is not unique to them. A lot of the seminaries are in the same boat by this point. And here's what he says, he graduates from a ministry school, and listen to this statement in 1973, to the best of my knowledge, none of my classmates, these are men trained to be pastors, none of my classmates, nor I, believe in any of the miraculous elements in the Bible, in anything supernatural, no six-day creation, that Adam and Eve were real historical people, that God really spoke to people, the flood with Noah, the ark, the Red Sea parting. We believe that no Old Testament scripture told of Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus was not anticipated in the Old Testament. I don't believe the virgin birth. One of my New Testament professors was moved to write a poem for the occasion of receiving his tenure, and he flatly denied the real deity of Christ. These are the ministry training schools. And he says, not one of my classmates believe in the miraculous in the Bible. 1977, John Wimber begins pastoring a church in Anaheim, California that would grow to 6,000 members and become the mother church of what was known as the Vineyard Association, comprised today of more than 700 churches worldwide and prominent in the contemporary worship movement. In fact, that was the birthplace of the Christian rock movement. I wonder if many realize today John Wimber, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, They both would say their churches would have nothing if it wasn't for Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee was a self-proclaimed prophet, an LSD addict, homosexual, who died of AIDS in his early 40s. Spoke voluminously to these hippie movement groups while he was strung out on LSD having his prophecies. That's where this stuff started. It's shocking. Uh, That's where the Christian rock movement began. It grew out of that. There's a lot more to say on that, but I won't say any more. We've got to move on. 1977, another mass ecumenical conference in Kansas City. And as is normally in these conferences nowadays, you have roughly half the participants are Roman Catholic. Please understand what I'm saying. I love Catholic people. But if they don't come to the Christ of the Bible the way He prescribes, they will not be saved. And to invite them to these big events and not preach clearly to them, you talk about blood on the hands. It's unreal. So you have these stadiums filled and promise keepers movements and things came after this, but they're they're, they're mainly the same thing. You've got 20, 30, 40,000 people, roughly half of them Roman Catholic, so-called Christian rock blasting. And they say we cannot have unity based on doctrine. Doctrine will always separate the body of Christ. It's supposed to. Yes, doctrine separates because God says it's supposed to. Biblical unity is always based on doctrine. There is no unity with false gospels and false Christ. We are told to get away. Cardinal Fulton Sheen, remember the one that had met with Billy Graham on the train? Now he's a cardinal. He dies December 9th. 1979, Billy Graham praises him for breaking down the walls between Catholics and Protestants. And he says, I count it a privilege to have known him as a friend for over 35 years. I mourn his death and look forward to our reunion in heaven. Here's what Fulton Sheen said about himself. In fact, his entire autobiography, one whole chapter is called The Woman I Love and is Devoted to Mary. Mary. And he says, when I was ordained, I took a resolution to offer the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist every Saturday to the Blessed Mother. Now, listen to this. Because of what he did for Mary, all this makes me very certain that when I go before the judgment seat of Christ, he will say to me in his mercy, I heard my mother speak of you. Is that the gospel? I'm sorry, Mr. Graham, that man is not in heaven. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. 1981, Robert Bratcher. He's the translator of the today's English version. Now pay attention to this. These are some of the philosophies behind some of the modern versions. Here's what the translator says of the TEV. Only willful ignorance or intellectual dishonesty can account for the claim that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. He says, you're either stupid or a liar if you think the Bible is infallible. This is a guy translating Bibles. He says, no truth-loving, God-respecting, Christ-honoring believer should be guilty of such heresy. To invest the Bible with the qualities of inerrancy and infallibility is to idolatrise it and transform it into a false god. You have a- a guy translating new translation says you're an idiot if you think the Bible is infallible. What in the world is he doing touching the scriptures is what I want to know. Go play with Time Magazine or something, buddy. In uh, 1982, Robert Runsey, Archbishop of Canterbury. He's asked at Easter by a newspaper reporter about the meaning of the cross. And he says, as to that, I'm an agnostic. 1982, here comes Robert Schuller publishing Self-Esteem the new reformation and Schuler, Shuler of course, he was the really the biggest promoter of the so-called church growth movement at the beginning and other guys followed him. But what did, what did he teach about self-esteem? He redefined Christianity in terms of self-esteem theology. For instance, here's what he said. You know what sin is according to Robert Shuler? Sin is a lack of self-esteem and to be born again means that you have to be changed from a negative to a positive self-image That's what it means to be born again, is to have a better opinion of yourself. Funny thing, when I was born again, I had a worse opinion of myself. And I had a whole lot better view of Christ. All right, 1983, how's the World Council of Churches doing with their ecumenical unity? 1983, the General Assembly features a pagan dance by a Hindu woman from South India. And it's a classic dance performed for the Hindu Earth Mother Goddess. 1983 the new national council of churches in america lectionary features prayers to god as father and mother 1984 the editors of christianity today remember the remember the positive only magazine we're not going to be judgmental they examine robert schuler's self-esteem theology and conclude that he's just fine he's not a heretic 1984, the World Council of Churches publishes No Longer Strangers, which instructs women to pray to God by the following names. Lady of Peace. This is how they're supposed to pray to God. Lady of Peace, Lady of Wisdom, Lady of Love, Lady of Birth, Lord of Stars, Lord of Planets, Mother, Baker Woman. That's nice. Presence, Power, Essence, and Simplicity. How's the unity going without doctrine? Isn't this nice? Everybody agrees. In 1984, former fundamentalist Jack Van Impe makes a 180 degree turn from fundamentalism, which is a strict adherence to the scriptures, to a totally ecumenical end times philosophy, and publishes heart disease in the body of Christ. And he begins to misdefine biblical love like many people do saying, let's forget our labels and come together in love, and the Pope has called for that. Till I die, I'll proclaim nothing but love for all my brothers and sisters in Christ, Catholic brothers, Protestant, Christian, Reformed, Lutheran, I don't care what label you are, we're all Christians. Um, 1985, the Jesus Seminar begins its meetings. Throughout the 1980s, its participants, they'd get together and they'd cast these ballots. They'd have roundtable discussions about the Bible. And uh, the big deal, the Jesus Seminar, and uh, they would use pegs or balls. And after discussing a passage, the modernistic scholars would cast their votes. Red would indicate a strong probability that this was authentic pink a good probability gray a weak possibility and black little to no possibility so they'd open they'd read a passage of the scriptures and say now let's all vote on how authentic this is and they concluded that jesus spoke only 18 percent of the words attributed to him in the bible in 1986 the sixth assembly of the world council of churches in vancouver british columbia you see where this ecumenical direction goes throughout doctrine just play nice we're all in this together. Uh, they feature a North American pagan Indian who builds an altar and a sacred flame under which he tosses offerings of fish and tobacco to appease his nature gods and around which they all danced. Uh, three Hindus, four Buddhists, two Jews, four Muslims, and a Sikh were official guests of the assembly, and there were readings from Hindu, Buddhist, and Muslim scriptures. And the general secretary's report to the assembly, Philip Potter, said that it was God's will to unite all nations and their diversity into one house. You see the world church coming together? Church? (laughs) Throw out doctrine. Another big uh, conference in, we are almost done, I appreciate your patience, 1987. North American Congress on the Holy Spirit and world evangelism. And again, half the attendees of the 40,000 are Roman Catholic. And they're going to get together and discuss world evangelism. Now, Catholic priest Tom Forrest brings a concluding message urging unity for the sake of evangelism. And he brings the multitude to its feet with pandemonious clapping and shouting when he cries, We must reach the world. We must do it the only way we can. We must do it together. So everybody's cheering. We've got to reach the world together. And you have multiple false gospels represented in the group. Now one night, roughly half the crowd stood during an invitation indicating they were uncertain about their salvation. So 20,000 people stand up saying, I don't really know if I'm saved or not. Well, what are they going to do? Well, the conference chairman is asked, why didn't the conference speakers speak definitively as to what the gospel message is, so there isn't this kind of confusion. It's a fair question. Here's what he says. It takes too much time. We don't have time to do that. We're going to reach the world through the gospel, but we don't have time to give the gospel. This makes sense when doctrine is thrown out. 1989, an extensive survey, the pastors and laity by the Presbyterian Church USA. Listen to this. 1989, Presbyterian Church. Only 5% of the pastors believe the Bible should be taken literally. 5%. 1990, Thomas Nelson publishes Evangelical Catholics, which is a call for Christian cooperation to penetrate the darkness. Another rallying cry to join together with uh, the Catholics and Protestants so-called for the sake of unity and gospel preaching and love. 1990, how's the World Council of Churches doing? Seventh Assembly in Canberra, Australia, opens with the pagan worship by Aboriginal men who girded in loincloths and feathers, their bodies painted in tribal decoration, danced around an altar and beat drums in a traditional purification ceremony. In her speech before the Assembly, South Korean Presbyterian feminist theologian, Chung Hyung Kayoung, Summoned the spirits of the dead and the spirit of earth, air, and water and said, I no longer believe in an omnipotent macho warrior God who rescues all good guys and punishes all bad guys. You know, this sounds like a comedy. Watching that sounds like a comedy show, but it's not. They're serious. We're almost done. 1992, in his book, The Body, Chuck Colson calls for closer ties with evangelicals and Catholics. Again, the whole, we're we're all part of the body, he says. Then you have the Pentecostal revivals at Carpenter's Home Church in Lakeland, Florida, uh, followed by the Brownsville revivals, and and basically people falling on the floor and vomiting and barking and saying, a 10,000 pound weight laid on me. It had to be God. Show me in the Bible where God ever pins people down like that and they can't move as part of a New Testament church meeting. 1993. Remember, Jack Van Impe had rejected biblical separation. He publishes Startling Revelations, Pope John Paul II. By the way, uh, this became his biggest selling item. It's a video presenting the Pope as a true prophet and defender of the faith. What faith? Defender of what faith? Not the faith. 1994 was the Evangelicals and Catholics together signing this document where uh, calling the Christian mission in the third millennium. And basically was joining together with Catholic theology and so-called Protestant theology. We all believe the same thing. And really good. By the way, men like J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is exceedingly intelligent and he's written some tremendous books. But boy, was he wrong here. Here's what they said in this document. We together, evangelicals and Catholics, confess our sins against the unity that Christ intends for all disciples. you catch that? Basically, they're saying all these years we've been sinning against God by saying we don't believe the same thing. And uh, now we repent of that. 1994, the London Sunday Times for July 31st uh, gives a report on a conference for Christian atheists. Oh, you heard that right. And at least 100 Church of England priests do not believe there is a God. A conference for Christian atheists. 1997. Probably the last thing I'll say about Billy Graham. In a May 30 interview, Billy Graham tells David Frost, I feel I belong to all churches. I'm equally at home in an Anglican or Baptist or Brother in Assembly or a Roman Catholic church. Today, we have almost 100% Catholic support in this country. That was not true 20 years ago. And the bishops and archbishops and the Pope are our friends. He says God's calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from Muslim or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They're all members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts they need something they don't have. And they turn to the only light they have. And I think they're saved and they're going to be with us in heaven. Did you catch that one? Doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or atheist, as long as you're really sincere in that, you're fine. You'll be in heaven. 1998, two more were done. In his book, New Apostolic Christianity, Church Growth Guru, Peter Wagner says, I believe we're witnessing a reinventing of world Christianity. He's right about that, only it's not a good thing. And he gives nine marks of a new apostolic type church, including new power orientation. Okay, According to the church growth guru, he says, here's the the things that an apostolic church is going to have. Healing, demonic deliverance, spiritual warfare, prophecy, falling in the spirit, spiritual mapping, and prophetic acts. And he says, it'll be more emphasis on the heart than on the mind. And what he's saying is, we jettison doctrine, and we go after the emotions. The last one, 1999. Uh, Pope John Paul II arrives in St. Louis on January 26th for the Light of the World Roman Catholic Youth Gathering. And of course, to welcome the Pope and sing at this conference is pretty much all the who's who with the Christian rock movement. The bands that I used to listen to at the time. What's my point in that? Let me just say this without getting into detail. But the Christian rock movement, without question, is the glue that holds the ecumenical movement together. It really is. Every one of these massive conferences where doctrine's thrown out the window, the one theme is that. The shallow, emotional, pounding music which totally de-emphasizes doctrine and trains people to react by emotion and not by sound doctrine. Anyways, I know that was long. And like I said, I didn't go through all of it even. But I hope that was fruitful time just beginning to illustrate what it is we're talking about of how this totally skyrocketed during the 20th century. And uh, a lot of these issues and isms we're dealing with now. The roots were laid back then. And uh, look, we have much reason to rejoice, but apostasy is just going to keep spreading. That's why we better be prepared. Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this time. And again, Lord, I know this has been a weird message, tedious, probably too much information. But Lord... What good does it do if we're merely puffed up by knowledge? It doesn't do anything. Father, you know the age in which we live. And you know the complexity of dealing with my own wicked heart as a preacher. Searching my own motives. Why do I mention some of this? Why do I mention some of these names? Father, we've got to be aware of this. I pray you'd help us to be educated on these things for your sake, not for ours. Father, I pray for for so many who are caught up in this end times one world church heresy that they'd see the true gospel. I pray, Lord God, that those that are actually seeking truth, I know many aren't, but those that are actually seeking truth, that they'd find it. They'd find the real gospel preachers that still exist they'd find real Christian people to give them truth. Father, thank you that we get to share this meal together. We ask your blessing on the food and, uh, and the visiting time. Thank you for these uh, seasons of feasting. In Jesus' name, amen.